Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. The industry is experiencing an extended downturn market along with persistently high feed costs, and they are seeing impacts to their equity. National Pork Board's 15 pork producer uh, board members are dealing with the same problems and are leaning in to help with the checkoff. I'm here with Bill Evans, CEO with National Pork Board, and Joe Kearns, President of Partners for Production Agriculture, for an insight in the current situation, where producers can turn to and share some of the checkoff work underway on these topics. So. To kind of jump into things here and and talk about the downturn in the markets and uh, the persistently high feed costs that we're seeing and how that's affecting producer equity, we have Joe Kearns to kind of lead us off here. Joe, normally we're seeing hog prices and the cutout trend higher from spring to summer, yet this year that has not happened. What's going on? Uh, Well, first of all, thanks, Matthew, for having me on here today. Uh, And you are right. Uh, We've been very, very sluggish. I want to caution your listeners that we are still in April, technically just right at the end here, mind you. And so this transition from spring to summer still has time to materialize. We are running running more animals through our turnstiles than what we had anticipated. If you just take a look at the December hogs and pigs report we were anticipating, we were going to have 1% fewer animals. Uh, We ended up having, uh, during that time frame of marketings, roughly 2% more. So that 3% swing from expectation to reality has certainly put a damper on the market. Uh, The packers have been able to procure as many animals as they can uh, efficiently run through at relatively economic uh, terms, and they're doing exactly what they should be doing. So uh, we've got a situation where this is just a bit of a quagmire. Uh, So on top of the supply situation, uh, Dr. Meyer has done quite a little bit of work and has uh, articulated this cleanly, is that we've seen a shift in domestic demand. And and this is down a demand curve. During the the COVID era, we saw a great uptick in uh, in the the willingness of, of of uh, consumers uh, to utilize pork in their diets um, uh, for their meals. That transpired into higher prices uh, to our our production community as well as the packing community. And we've seen a regression kind of back to the mean, where where we were for the 10 years prior to the COVID experience. And that probably shouldn't be a huge surprise right now. So the combination of demand weakening from an economist standpoint and supply being a little bit higher than what we've had anticipated, those those two events kind of converged into uh, this doldrums that you referenced. So what can we expect in the next few months? Are there going to be more challenges or opportunities that uh, may be coming our way? 
Uh, well, certainly, uh, uh, we're, we're in a good time frame where things don't get significantly worse from where we sit here. I'd, I'd like to tell you uh, that we'd get a lot better, but I don't think that's quite the truth. We're, we're going to more than likely be at or below break-even levels through the summertime, a, a time frame where we would normally anticipate that we would make our profits for the year and then try to hang on to them through the fall months. And this year doesn't appear as if it's going to uh, kind of wind up in, in that in that that manner here. Uh, I think the mid-90s uh, from a CME standpoint is about all we could expect out of this pork market given um, given our work of, of supply and demand and, and where the, the rubber is going to meet the road. And with the recent rally that we've had on the board, we're almost there. And so uh, uh, challenges, yes, we, we will not be profitable in 2023, almost assuredly. Opportunities, Yes, because I do believe that the forward curve offers uh, uh, pork producers higher values than what we're actually going to see when we get there. And that's, that's, a, that's a tough sale, Matthew, uh, of taking a small loss now versus facing a larger loss in the future um, is the right thing to do, but it's a very difficult one to digest. That, that's fair. That would be very hard. What do you see hog numbers doing through the end of the year? Do you think there's going to be a, a positive shift there right now? I mean, there's, I mean, the fact that we have a high number of hogs, I mean, that's a big part of the problem right now. Uh, where do you see that going? Well, I, I referenced the December report where we had a little bit of deviation of expectation versus reality. Uh, the March report tried to straighten the deck just a little bit, and, and maybe it just uh, did more than anything just confirmed the December numbers uh, and, and didn't give you a boogeyman in the closet that, oh, my goodness, we're, we're really going to expand and not see any profitability whatsoever. So I do see relatively static numbers coming from our domestic side of it. The, the, the problem, and I put that in air quotes, is uh, what's going on north of the border with the closure of some facilities uh, in Canada that has allowed uh, both market and wean pigs in order to flow over the border. And that's that's going to keep a lid on prices. Normally, when we would anticipate uh, that uh, seasonal infertility and, and a diminished uh, harvest schedule in the middle of the summer would allow prices to move higher, I do believe we've got a, a bit more of a buffer or an offset, if you will, coming from Canada. Canada. So uh, I'm I'm not very optimistic uh, on this forward curve, and I do believe that producers owe it to themselves to take advantage of what I believe to be uh, our, our elevated values relative to what they're going to be when we get there. What about when it comes to to uh, feed? I mean, it represents the number one variable cost for pork producers. What do you see with the March USDA prospective planning's report and the global and corn supply? I mean. We got people that are getting into the the fields a little bit later here than normal, um, especially up north in the plains. So how might that impact things? Well, if you take the report at face value, the March report gave us another million acres of corn relative to what the trade was anticipating coming in, and 92 million acres. And if we get the 92 million acres and get the projected yield that came from the February forum of 181 and a half, you'd shrug and say, what are you guys all worried about? Well, and I do believe that there's a reason for caution. <clears throat> Your reference of the Northern Plains specifically, having a little bit of difficulty getting uh, tractors rolling in the field, I think 
is uh, perhaps the most poignant component. North Dakota, two weeks ago, North Dakota had 10 inches of snow over 50% of the state. That Obviously, that melts, that causes some flooding, that causes some very moist conditions. Then let's just call it I-90 North, just as a, as a general uh, component here. You had North Dakota that represented almost a million more acres on that uh, March report. And so, you know, it, and let's just say it's, it, they'll dry out here in the next couple of weeks, which I do believe they will. Their prevent plant date is, is May 25th. And that May 25th date is going to represent a rather attractive option for a farmer in the Dakotas. Uh, to, we had elevated prices in February when the government set the values as opposed to where we sit right now uh, on the December corn. So I think there's going to be a very uh, decent motivation in order to abandon some acres for economic purposes. And that doesn't foster our cause in animal agriculture. We need every acre to roll through here uh, to kind of uh, complete a cycle here. We, we, we've had three years of La Nina. We've got a displacement of the grain on the east versus the west side of the Mississippi River. We've got all kinds of things going on in the atmosphere, and, and, and perhaps on this particular podcast, we don't have time to address those. But just suffice it to say, we're going to have a very, very active summer uh, as far as uh, uh, weather is concerned. Um, with moisture patterns that, that are going to, to uh, be very erratic as the atmosphere is, is uh, incredibly volatile at this point in time. Uh, from a world situation, you've got Brazil pulling off a record crop of both corn and soy. Basis values uh, are representative of such. Uh, closer to home, you've got flooding on the Mississippi River. And so our export shipments haven't been all that captain fantastic. And you, you've seen a, a bit of a swoon in feed prices here. Uh, yeah. Yesterday, December corn broke $6. Today, it's trading at uh, $5.76. That's, that's a big change. That's a very, very large change. And so we've seen a little bit of reprieve. If you've been hand-to-mouth on your on your feedstuffs, you're going to do okay. DDGs have fallen precipitously. Uh, soybean meal has come down. And so we are getting some relief on the input side of it. I would caution you that uh, pay close attention to what's going on in the spreads. And this, uh, uh, specifically the May July spread trading out near 50 cents is giving you a little tap on the shoulder saying this thing isn't over quite yet. Uh, basis values are popping back up. Uh, we are going to have a relatively snug carryout for the balance of 2023 until we get to harvest, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of you know dissect what that looks like at that point in time. Uh, but but I I do think that we're getting a bit of a gift here for producers, and uh, uh, if it was my money, I'd probably be buying rather than selling right now in the grain markets. So margins economic situation at the moment for producers is is poor uh packer margins have also been pretty tight how is that potentially impacting the desire of processing plants to run six days a week oh uh, you you've hit the nail on the head on this one and you don't have to look uh, much further than the headline so whether it's the tyson earnings that have recently come out uh we've uh we've had a chapter 11 filing of one facility in the united states uh the publicly traded companies where you get a peek under the covers of what's going on will will quickly tell you this isn't fun this is this is not fun for anybody involved in production agriculture at this point in time and and i know a lot of times from a producer's 
standpoint, we'd like to vilify the Packers as being the bad guys. They're not. They're, they're not. And, and, and maybe they maybe they earn that label on occasion, but at least in this particular case, we're all in the same boat. We've got a vested interest in the disappearance of pork. They're not making money. We're not making money. I've got uh, very, very large concerns about what a reduction in packing capacity might mean to the production community if that were to occur. Uh, hopefully, we'll get, uh, get these facilities uh, that get their finances lined back out again and, and continue to operate. Uh, but, but I think that the compression within the processing side of it is, is well taken, and, and we do have concerns. So kind of my last question here before we turn to Bill. When we look at just the history of going through hard times as an industry, um, I feel like this one's unique. I'd like you to put your take on it. Um, most land is bought and paid for. Uh, most of mm-hmm. the producers that are in our industry have been are towards the end of their careers. And, and uh, I think we have a, a significant amount of wealth in our industry now compared to what we had in the 80s and 90s. Uh, how is that going to potentially impact or help navigate uh, these hard times? Uh, I think you're, you're accurate on both counts here. Uh, so number one, we are in an economic compression. It's almost like getting sick. It's like, and when you're sick, you compare what, what happened the last time and, and probably, you know, two illnesses aren't exactly alike. Uh, but, but we are, we are in an unhealthy position as an industry right now. Your point of, uh, I want to say the statistics are 83% of the farm ground across the United States is bought and paid for. And so in a, a rising interest rate environment, uh, where it might mean compression to an industry that has to borrow money and, and have, therefore have higher returns just to kind of justify stock price, that, that, that whole cycle, we kind of look at each other and shrug a little bit, uh, that, that it's much less impactful. Uh, I was listening to uh, our lending facilities the other day when they were giving a presentation, and about 75% of their portfolios are wrapped up in, in the, the agronomy side of it, in the land component. And so, therefore, um, if you are a, a diversified operation where you have a land base as well, as your animal production components, you're more than likely still doing okay. Now, don't get me wrong. No, nobody's having fun at this point in time. But I do believe that we, from a financial health standpoint, we're in a much, much better position to weather this storm than we were uh, back in the high interest rate environment of the early 80s uh, when we went through the down draw in uh, 1998 as an industry again in 2009. Uh, this feels a lot like, to me, like 2016. And and if you kind of put this parallel together, 2014 was the most profitable year that we've ever had in in, uh, pork production, largely because of PED. We got a a new acronym at that point in time. Uh, 2015 was okay. 2016, very, very difficult. Fast forward. 2021, because of COVID, another new acronym we didn't know at the time. We we had pretty good profits. 2022, a transition year, and here we are in 2023. So maybe history repeats itself with a little bit of a different flavor. Uh, but I, I do agree with your initial posit that we are much better financially able to withstand this particular downdraw than perhaps we would have been in the past. Thank you for your comments, Joe. Uh, Bill, Chekhov is producer-led, conducts research, promotion, education for U.S. pork, both domestically and internationally. But when we look at the market development portion, can you tell us what the checkoff is doing here in the U.S. and in international markets to drive demand? 
Yeah, thanks, Matt. And, and thanks, Joe, for your comments as well. So, yeah, there's two prongs to the work that the checkoff does, both domestically and internationally. Maybe just touch on a, a couple of things. Uh, obviously, the comments around demand on the retail side is very important. And so the checkoff here, uh, starting last fall and this winter, went into a number of major retail chains on the East Coast. Uh, there are tens of millions of consumers out there. So we went into Food Lion, Winn-Dixie, and Price Chopper stores, and we did a new, uh, I say a new tactic. Uh, we put some kiosks in the front of these stores that provided pork checkoff information uh, around pork as a food that was in the form of a video. And then from that, the consumer was able to get a recipe card and a coupon. Now, that coupon was not paid for by the checkoff. It was paid for by the retailers and the packers supporting this effort. And in those stores across, um, we did a pilot. It's now been expanded to 411 stores in five states. It's going to run uh, starting in June through September. And the pilot we did that convinced the retailers uh, selling pork was in their best interest, pork chop sales volume moved up 37% year over year. Pork loin volume sales went up 43% year over year, and our ground pork volume up 105% compared to uh, previous month. And so, you know, that ground pork story is something that uh, we've been in market with now for two years. And what we're seeing is a 10 to 1 ROI uh, for retailers featuring ground pork. And I think that's the, that's the big lift. And some data here, and this isn't Pork checkoff data. This is data from uh, IRI and Nielsen, these major firms that track uh, retail sales. Uh, we've got over 600,000 more households are purchasing ground pork than last year. We've got 96% of retailers are now carrying ground pork, which is 31% more than just pre-COVID. And then we're seeing that the, the sales cycle is accelerating as well. Uh, we've had some retailers that have been looking at putting ground pork in and getting it labeled better. And they're, move, they're moving up that purchase cycle up 30 days. And so overall, uh, these folks that are increasing the ground pork grind sets uh, is up by 20%. So we've got a product in store that is displacing some of these alternative proteins. And as we know, you know, with food price inflation right now for the consumer, ground pork's a real value and a great flexible substitute. So that's one of the things on the retail side. Shifting internationally, um, Joe had talked a little bit uh, about, about the export markets. Now, the U.S. dollar has been really strong, and we all know that that uh, foreign exchange rate then puts some pressure on us as we're trying to move product internationally. Uh, but we're seeing, the, I say, the pull-through now on what some of these lower prices are. Uh, just this week, uh, got some real positive results on uh, export sales report. Uh, sales to Mexico were up 200% over the past month. And we're seeing uh, in Korea, for example, a sharp drop from buying from the European Union and the U.S. and Canada picking up some of that uh, market. And in fact, uh, we sent uh, our board member, Dale Stevemer from Minnesota over to Japan last week. He met with um, two of the nation's largest uh, pork importers in Japan, Nippon Ham and Ito Ham. And he met with them directly, working with U.S. Meat Export Federation. And what we're seeing is the decline in the European Union pork industry is really opening up an opportunity for the U.S. to go in there and start to uh, pick up and recover market share. And we met with a discounter uh, over there in, in Japan, in Tokyo. 
that is now completely shifting from Canadian pork to U.S. pork. And so there's kind of two legs to the stool uh, since we export about uh, a little north of 25% of our product here this last year. So this might be a kind of a softball here because I feel like I know what uh, what's coming. But when it comes to consistency and quality, Chekhov has really put a, a nice focus in this area. Uh, what what has Chekhov been doing in that area, and is it getting better or worse? Well, the the, the work is not done by the Chekhov. It's been done by the producers and the packers and the investments in both the genetics and, uh, you know, snap chill and CO2 stunning and just better product handling and moving chilled product. And the pork board since uh, 2012 has been doing a really uh, focused in-market retail study. Uh, we just completed the the last update here this last year. And, and here's some of the information I think people will be interested in knowing. Our product is getting a lot better. Uh, we went into 16 different markets across the United States, 27 different retail grocery store chains, and 104 stores. And we bought 6,000 center-cut loin chops and evaluated them in-store in real market conditions for the consumer. And then we also evaluated them in lab uh, to understand how are we performing as we go from 2012 or the past decade to today. And here's the good news um, on consistency. We've seen a doubling of our, you know, of our consistency in product since the last time we did this in 2018. We've got to 70% of the pork loin has got a color score of three or more. On the quality side, 60% of the loins that we are assessing are a color score three or above. And then on tenderness, you know, how easy is this stuff to eat? Uh, the very tender ranking is 40% higher than 2018, and we're seeing a lot less uh, loss in uh, in cooking, cooking and shrink there. So at the end of the day, you folks as producers have done a fantastic job. The packing industry has done a fantastic job. The genetics industry has done a fantastic job, and we've gotten better. And so that, I think, positions us really well for long-term growth. But at the end of the day, um, we do know that a lot of our loins are exported uh, internationally because they're willing to pay a lot of money for it. That means improvements to quality here on the stuff that we still uh, have in the U.S. is going to be critical. And the data shows that uh, we've come a long way and, and we've gotten a lot better. So when it comes to sharing the research from retailers, how, I mean, how are you reaching retailers and packers like to share that research that you guys are doing? Yeah, you know, having the data doesn't do any good unless you actually yeah. go out and talk to people that uh, have to have to drive it. So um, we started here this winter. Uh, this information is just hot off the press here right towards the end of the year, end of 2022. And so we've had uh, team meetings one-on-one -on -one with Smithfield, uh, Tyson, uh, run, them, run them off here. So Smithfield, Tyson, JBS, Seaboard, Clemens, Hormel, and Holstone. And on the flip side, um, we're bringing 11 of the nation's largest national grocery retailers together in Minneapolis uh, on May 9th and 10th. And we're going to sit down with them along with some of the food distribution companies and talk to them about the product and show them where we're going with ground pork and show them the sales opportunity that you have that we've had these successes in these uh, kiosks in these stores out on the East Coast. So this is just the 
the meat and potatoes work of meeting directly with the people that have got to run these businesses and showing them how pork needs to be part of their portfolio and to keep it moving. So to kind of wrap up, um, I'm going to ask you guys for any last thoughts, but before I do that, I'm going to share, we were, we're getting prepared for the world pork expo, right? Cause we're all about to meet together here in the next month or so. And, uh, we were asking for a fun fact from Barrett Eller, who's on our team and is up in Jackson, Minnesota. And he had the hardest time coming up with something. And he said, you know what? Because he's very regimented and he's very focused on what he eats, he's like, I actually eat just over 500 pounds of pork a year. He's like, that's 11 times the pork of the average consumer. So call to action is if everybody can eat like Barrett, I think we're going to be better off in the long run. But uh, this incredible amount of pork that that guy eats and thought you guys might find that funny um what what thoughts do you guys have on on just everything we've talked about any additional thoughts joe or bill well, first of all go, go ahead bill no go ahead joe you you've got a uh, flight to catch uh well my my first thought is that uh if if eating that much pork makes you as muscle bound as Barrett is, that's a, that's a heck of an advertisement that you've got. That's, a, that's, a, that's one big boy right there. Um, uh, I, th- I think Bill did a fantastic job of something I, I didn't expound upon, and that is uh, the export side of it, uh, of hope for our industry. We are a low-cost producer. We are the low-cost producer across the globe right now. The easing of the value of the dollar has helped uh, markedly, the, and these things are really slow to turn. It's like melting iceberg, guys. It just takes a long time for the manifestation of, of changing supply channels, uh, uh, all the logistics that are involved with this change that, that are directed by the economic stimuli. And that economic stimuli, uh, i.e., we are the most economical source of, of good, high-quality protein, is finally starting to melt some of that. And so I do believe that there's uh, room for optimism. And I didn't mean to, 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 to sound completely pessimistic, but we got to call them as we see them, and, and that we are not in a favorable economic condition now. I would take a look at 2024 for a myriad of reasons of being uh, a much more more optimistic than what I see happening for the balance of 2023. Thank you, Joe. Bill, you have any last thoughts? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to touch on a couple other things. Um, you know, we look at demographics, uh, both uh, globally as well as domestically. And, and here domestically, the, the real bright spot is the fact that, you know, the, the Hispanic population in the United States is approaching about 20% of our population, and they've got uh, over $2.5 trillion of purchasing power. And you add in the African-American audience as well, right? The consumers here, about 12%, give or take, of our population. And they've got nearly $2 trillion of buying power. So one other thing we've been doing behind the scenes that a lot of producers will never see is we're going direct into major urban markets with uh, pork messaging and uh, domestic sales uh, drivers and we've got uh, over 37 million people have been reached by some of our Hispanic ads uh, in a lot of these urban markets. And we've uh, done uh, quite a bit of work in, in distinct African-American markets as well. Uh, we've had over 500,000 uh, recipes printed out in, um, in Winn-Dixie and Food Line alone in some of these uh, African-American markets. These folks love our product. They've been told that, boy, you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat meat or you shouldn't eat pork for health reasons. 
And we're busting those myths with a lot of our nutrition work. And that sort of stuff is the blocking and tackling in the local grocery stores that a lot of our you know Midwestern producers won't run across. But rest assured that that's, that's underway. And uh, our board also has got a big effort now on the pork loin. Uh, we got a team of people put together. They're going to be knocking that out here this year. And that's part of the meeting we got coming up with all the retailers here um, the second week of May in Minneapolis. So there's a lot of just stuff going on behind the scenes. And that's why I appreciate you, Matt, uh, taking the time to let us talk about that. Very happy to have you both as guests on the Popular Pig Podcast. Appreciate you guys coming on and talking about a hard topic. And thank you both for everything that you are doing for the industry. I think we're going to get out of this okay. But yes, it'll be a rough year. And I think if everybody works together, we'll get through it okay. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Thank you.